Okay, we've busted a myth this morning. You do not have to get a booster shot for the flu if you get it before October. That is mythology. Evan McDonald has put the science up that shows you're good for the winter. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here this morning with Chris Warnowski, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon, who are rested after having worked pretty much for two days straight. And I don't think we'll be as tongue-tied as we've been. I don't know about that. Sometimes it's like worse the second day. So we'll see. <laughs> and what's such pessimism this morning? Let's step it up. What is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost's latest step to bring transparency and honesty to the move to repeal HB6, the corrupt bill adopted by the Ohio legislature, to make us all pay $1.3 billion to bail out what were then First Energy's nuclear plants? Jane Cahoon, I'm still amazed that Bob Cup, the House Speaker, is not doing anything to get rid of the stinky bill. And I'm kind of becoming a fan of Dave Yost. He's the only one stepping up. He took a step yesterday that I was like applauding because somebody finally in officialdom is doing the right thing on this. What did he do? Well, he wrote a letter to lawmakers urging them to to have representatives of Energy Harbor. That's the the name of the company that now owns the nuclear plant, a former First Energy subsidiary and First Energy, you know, the former parent company. He uh, urged them to have them, those representatives come in and testify before the legislative committees that are studying this bill and disclose whether those nuclear plants are profitable or not and whether they actually need the bailout money. So his, his letter said that the corporations owe it to the legislature and the public to appear before the committees and provide a detailed financial accounting of their operations, knowing what we know now these corporations have lost any benefit of the doubt. So he was what, pretty strong on that. What a, what a thought. Before we give you $1.3 billion of Ohioans' hard-earned cash, we'd like to see some evidence that you actually need it. <laughs> you got to wonder what this lame legislature was thinking when they didn't do this the first time. Okay, I get it. There was bribery involved. So Larry Householder and his crew were moving this through without doing the due diligence. But is there not one honest person in the legislature that would have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're going to give them $1.3 billion and we're not going to check to see if they actually need it. So thank you, Dave Yost. Hopefully, <laughs> COP, who is doing nothing with this, everybody who has spoken out on this, DeWine, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, Yost, everybody has said, repeal the damn thing. It stinks. And yet they're not moving. And a big mm -hmm. deadline passed this week, right? Right. I mean, as of now... They get the money, although Dave Yost has has sued to stop that. But right. they 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 would have had to pass a bill before what yesterday to, right. to stop and the they're, money. They're still saying that they can do it later during the lame duck and pass it as an emergency and still kind of beat that deadline. But yeah, this was the deadline for the ninety days that it needs uh, in order to take effect. So yeah, they missed that now. You mentioned the lawsuit. One of the reasons that the uh, the chairman of this committee studying the bill gave last week was that, you know, with all these lawsuits that Yost and others have filed, that that would prevent the company representatives from coming in. And I'm sure this delighted you as well. In Yost's letter, he said, no, no, no. You know, there's nothing that's 
that should, you know, in my lawsuit that should hinder them from coming in and answering questions, particularly about whether the, the plants are profitable. Now that this committee chairman, you know, said a little more yesterday that, well, maybe they could require an audit before the money goes out, but you know, the fact it's going is, out we, in January, How, they're not going to get an audit. <laughs> Look, they, these guys are just delaying people going to the polls. This is so big an issue. You got to just vote against the incumbent. Just get them out of there and get people in that are going to represent Ohioans. There is zero excuse here that this bill remains on the books. And you got to wonder what's going on in the background. I mean, as Davio said, from what we know now, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Well, the fact they're not doing anything raises serious questions about what's going on in the back rooms that they have not abolished this. Everybody talks about what an honest guy cup is, but why isn't he moving it? I mean, this is this is a serious question. Maybe we got to ask DeWine why he's not doing more to get his Republican colleagues to get rid of this thing. I mean, this right. is this is bad. And it's months later. I, I just the whole thing stinks. It was passed in a stinky deal. It stinks that it's not being removed. And, I, you know, I hear from a lot of people in the public. They keep thanking us because we're the ones asking these questions. I mean, I get notes pretty regularly saying, please don't stop. This has to be fixed. Please keep up asking the questions. Even people that criticize us from our liberal leanings or our right leanings say, the one thing I think you're doing right is reporting on HB6. So there wow, you, go. you found partisan agreement. I, but yes, I did. It's this week in the CLE. Is Cuyahoga County getting another ballot drop box after all the fighting that has gone on? This was a bit of a surprise story, Chris Warnowski, because because uh, our our secretary of state has fought like a dog to stop this from happening. And then, you know, almost very quietly yesterday, we learned movement. What was it? Right. So if you've been following the drama that unfolded last week, a federal judge basically told our county board of elections and the secretary of state to sort of figure out what to do about the county's desire, the county board's desire to add some places where people can drop off ballots over concerns that it would be really difficult for people who live in outer parts of the county to drive into the city and drop off their ballot at the Board of Elections office, which is downtown. So some good news. They they came to an agreement per the judge's you know request that they hash out some deal and try to figure it out without him having to make an actual decision. And they're going to add a drop box at 3100 Chester Avenue, which is basically in a parking lot right next to the Board of Elections office. So in in one sense, they have added something that will help, you know, more people get in and drop off their boxes. But it doesn't sort of alleviate the travel concerns that um, that that some voting rights groups have have been talking about since this this ordeal started you know i mean they think there was some statistic that showed that there were 90 minute round trips to come in and actually drop off your ballot for some people in this county the plan will go into effect on october 13th and it will include weekend hours and the site uh, will be in addition to the drop box at the county board at the county board of elections office so it will be staffed it will it will have weekend hours and you know it still allows the judge to sort of sidestep making a ruling but he will have to agree to um whatever they have approved let me point out well and there's still a state court battle going on so right because but but let me point out i used to commute on chester years ago i mean nobody's commuting now but but years ago I went in on Chester, but gave up because that section of Chester 
at 30th and Chester is a nightmare. It's, it's close to the interstate entrance. Traffic backs up on Chester, backs up on 30th. So, so multiple times a day, that's just a big mess. Why on earth would you put the drop box there? Why not? If you're going to be on Chester, put it up in University Circle, 70 blocks away to shorten the ride for people on the east side coming in. I, it's like, this is only a few blocks from the other drop box. That's just right. Stupid. So what, what are they thinking? So keep in mind, the board wanted six drop off sites at libraries that would be staffed around the county and the site on Chester Avenue. And LaRose has pretty much prevented that. I think I, you know, I can't speak to the thinking as to why Chester is the place they're going to do it because it just seems like, you know, you're not, you're not going to address what traffic issues are, are concerning some people. I, you know, I think if traffic problems are a concern for the County board of elections, then they should be tripping over themselves to convince people that if they're going to drop their ballot off, they should do it as soon as they can and not wait for election day, because that is where their biggest concern for a, a log jam of traffic is going to take place. So well, and, and not during rush hour. I just my, my point is, is if, if I'm the board of elections and I'm fighting with LaRose, which and the judges ordered us to work something out. I wouldn't I wouldn't pick there. I'd, I'd say, OK, we get one more. As of now, we get one more. What's the best way to serve our residents? <laughs> They're doing it a few blocks from the other one. And it yeah. it's just it's like it's, this isn't over. I'm sure that the voting rights advocates in state court will bring this up because this doesn't really solve the problem. Instead right. of instead of the massive traffic jam on Euclid, we'll have somewhat lesser massive traffic jams on Euclid and Chester, but it doesn't solve all the problems that have been brought up in this. So it's, it just seems like a bandaid. I, I just don't get this board of elections. They've been fumbling wildly for the past week uh, and things we've discussed. And it seems like they have fumbled here again. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Do we know anything more about the police officer who gave the finger Tuesday night to protesters who were demonstrating against, you guessed it, police abuse? Chris Ranowski, Adam Freese did some good reporting on this and actually caught a local police chief telling a bit of a fib. What's the story? <laughs> right. I, I mean, at, of all the things that would have come out of this that we had prepared for, I, I cannot believe this is a story that is now like into its third day. So if you remember, there was a video that one of our reporters captured and was actually on our live stream, if you had watched it on the night of the demonstrations of a a police officer in a group of it was like a caravan of, of big police vehicles driving past a Black Lives Matter protest. And in the third vehicle, you see somebody stick their hand out and give them the uh, universal sign language for some nasty words. And um, and we uploaded a clear version of the video yesterday, if you haven't seen it. And we found out uh, yesterday that the officer is a member of the Shaker Heights Police Department, which is a suburb on the east side of Cleveland. And the police chief over there, uh, or a police commander, John Cole, uh, said that there is an internal investigation underway. What was interesting is that when Adam had contacted the police department yesterday morning and asked them, you know, have, have you identified the officer? And he, and, and Cole or, or some, whoever he talked to in the morning said, well, we're still working to identify who it is. But then at one o'clock yesterday, the city Cleveland police chief 
held a press conference and told Adam that they had identified the officer immediately after this happened, after we posted the video and sent him home for the night. So um, they, they have still yet to identify him to us um, and saying that they probably won't give us his name until the investigation is complete. But yeah, it, that's where we stand. <laughs> it's, so, it's a, I mean, you know, that, this is going to follow this guy for the rest of the time. This is what he's going to be known for. He'll probably get hate mail and, and all, you know, the other police that were in that three car caravan, they were waving at people. They were being friendly. They were trying to be community police officers. You know, why do it? I mean, it's just it, it, it'll define him now for some period of time. And shame on the Shaker Heights police chief for not telling the truth. You know, everybody thinks about Shaker as this enlightened kind of city. But, you know, it was a Shaker cop, not a Cleveland cop that was flipping <laughs> off the, the protesters. And and think about the you know, here are the protesters peacefully exercising their free speech rights to say, stop killing black people, police. And what do the police do? <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, I mean, Calvin Williams seemed annoyed that this happened because they've done so much work in Cleveland to build a better relationship. Um, so I wonder what it means for their partnership with the suburban police. Anyway, good work by uh, by Adam. It'll be interesting to see what kind of discipline this guy gets. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What laws might be getting broken by the people flashing political messages on the side of Terminal Tower? This is an intriguing story, Laura Johnston, because there is nothing permanent about illuminating some words on the side of a building. So if I shine a flashlight on your house, am I breaking the law? If I shine a flashlight on your house that has an obscene word in it, am I breaking the law? You know, if I put Biden in a, in a, in a flashlight image on your house, am I breaking the law? The people at Tower City kind of believe you are. What are the laws that you could be breaking by doing this and and who is doing this? Yeah, so this is intriguing. This is kind of like the bat signal, if you can picture that, except it says Biden-Harris. And the folks at U.S. Steel projected this on the Terminal Tower Tuesday around 6 a.m., somewhere from uh, like a bridge in the flats. We should uh, we should point out, it wasn't U.S. Steel. It was the sorry. union for U.S. Steel. Okay, okay, sorry. The union for U.S. Steel. Good point. Um, the union has endorsed Biden-Harris in um, the presidential election. So K&D owns the building. They didn't grant permission for the union to use this tower for the display. They described the move as hijacking of an iconic downtown building and they 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 light up this building a lot but it's non-controversial stuff like the holidays the indians the calves so they contacted the police and the city prosecutor's office offered three possible laws that could be broken by this one a city law related to posting signs or other types of messages on private property without consent two a city law related to criminal mischief and three a state law related to political communications I'm throwing the flag here. I mean, this isn't a sign. I guarantee you, if you look in the city code, they define what a sign is. And <laughs> this isn't in there. The The idea that it's criminal mischief, that I, I, I bet that that is straining it, it to come up with a way to put that into there. It's It just sounds like it's ridiculous. The political signs thing. Maybe I'm not familiar enough with that. I, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it, it, you know, it's the, the 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 union immediately said, "Look, they sent us a note, to ask us to take it down. We won't do it anymore. We didn't think it was a crime. I'm still not sure it's a crime. I think the city prosecutor's office might be reaching a little. Anyway, fascinating thing. We have a photo and, of this. Um, is it online or is it just in print today? 
We'll, we'll definitely have it online if it's not up already, but they are planning to do this elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see how other cities respond. Oh, they're going to do it in other cities, not in other buildings well, in Cleveland. Well, I, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure with that. They said, I think they were pretty nonspecific about that. So it could be outside the city of Cleveland. Maybe they'll try it buildings inside, but they didn't, we weren't trying to break the law. And they said, look, yeah, like we're sorry. I don't know if they actually apologized, but. Of course, the problem with doing it in downtown Cleveland right now is nobody sees it. There's nobody there. That's why they had to take a picture. Go out to the Metro Parks. There's bigger crowd. (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What were the television ratings for the wrestling match that purported to be a presidential debate in Cleveland Tuesday night? Jane Cahoon, did Cleveland get a moment in the spotlight or did everybody turn away from this horrible spectacle of our president and his challenger acting like four-year-olds? <laughs> well, given that there were predictions of Super Bowl-like ratings for, for this debate, it fell way short of that. But it still did draw a huge audience. So so just for comparison, the Super Bowl typically attracts 100 million viewers. But according to Nielsen, this debate got 73.1 million total viewers. That's across 16 broadcast and cable networks. But that's still less than the first debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016. That one got 84 million uh, total viewers. So uh, still the, the rating for Tuesday's debate was good enough to make it the second most watched show of 2020 behind the Super Bowl, and it was the third most watched debate ever behind that 2016 debate that I mentioned and the Reagan-Carter debate in, in 1980. Now, I, I think what we don't know here is like how many people tuned in and were so disgusted that they changed the channel. I don't know if they measure those kinds of things. Yeah, I bet many more people peeled off than the previous debates. And I wish I had thought of this before the podcast so you could prepare for it because you're probably not going to know the answer. But do we know if this includes international people watching? Is that just the U.S.? Did did Laura's beloved fellow Canadians tune in for this spectacle? <laughs> My you know, cousin we're, we're... actually did watch it in Canada. She's like, why? I should be watching Shit's Creek. So, th- so they did. They did broadcast it in in Canada. You could yeah. watch this in other countries. I just wonder how much of the rest of the world watched our embarrassing spectacle because you know it's not good for the country's image that we had that kind of scrum. But we don't know if those numbers include that, right, Jane? I don't. Um, I mean, it says across the uh, sixteen broadcast and. Um, yeah, I, my, I think my guess networks. My my guess is they probably don't measure international audience for that that it would be domestic i don't i don't know that they can if they had the legal ability to actually reach across uh, international lines and actually measure that so it my guess is it's u.s u.s viewership and streaming so yeah yeah i I don't know if that's important or not but you know i i you know knowing how nielsen worked back in the day i i i don't think they ever took the pulse of other countries without being specific about it Well, and let's hope it wasn't available widely outside of the United States. (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As expected, an appellate court slapped down a lower court's order that the state accept online absentee ballot applications. Chris Ranowski, we kind of speculated that this would go this way because it didn't seem to have a basis in law to uh, order it. What was the reasoning of the appellate court for why the state does not have to accept online ballot applications? 
Right. So the appellate court basically said that a Franklin County judge was wrong when he ordered Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose to accept electronic absentee ballot applications uh, for the upcoming election. However, all three judges who ruled on this said LaRose uh, under state law has the discretion to do so were he to choose to do so at some point, which is something LaRose has kind of said, like, I, I, I don't have the ability to do this, but the judges disagree. What I think their concern was, and these are judges of the 10th District Court of Appeals, they actually agreed with the arguments from the Ohio Democratic Party that the state law does not prohibit election officials from accepting applications for absentee ballots via email or fax. But they said that the the issue in this case is that it it would be unfair to make LaRose do these do this change so close to the erection, citing a possible security risk of of quickly establishing the ability to request electronic absentee ballots. LaRose could allow it or, or the state could allow it. There's nothing mm-hmm. in state law that says not to. But what the what the people fighting this don't have to do is the don't have is the power to compel it, which right. is where the judges pretty much fell down. Yeah, I, the, the, I mean, and this could be appealed, although this one, I just, I don't expect it's going to change. Plus, we are on the cusp of it. I mean, it's it's voting begins in less than a week. Yeah. You're, li- you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is going to sign the prohibition on plastic bag bans, even though he is against it. Laura Johnston, the, the Bob Cups House chamber, wasted no time in passing this law, even though they will not deal with the corrupt HB6 that is costing us $1.3 billion. So they've sent it to Mike DeWine. And he says, yeah, I don't agree with this because it violates local control, but he's going to sign it anyway. Take us through that logic. So, yes, uh, Mike DeWine was against this bill originally, but now that the measure expires after a year, he has been persuaded to support it. Plus, he said the coronavirus has made people like you, Chris Quinn, reconsider bringing their own bags into the grocery stores. So we've talked about that before on the podcast. Wait, 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 wait. wait it's not reconsidering it. The store is prohibited. No, well, that's I mean, it's, true. Like, it's well, not a personal the- decision. Aldi say it's still you can buy, bring your bags to Aldi. But anyway, the point is that that during the coronavirus, we were very concerned about the virus being spread, that plastic is being used a lot more. And so Mike DeWine saying, look, this is going to expire after a year. I'm OK with this. But if you pass this again and don't put an expiration on it next year, he d- says he doesn't think he's going to sign it. Um, I love that he's sticking up for home rule because I, I don't hear a lot of Republicans that stick up for home rule. Yeah, I mean, he said that I really don't want to get in the way of local people trying to do it. Cuyahoga County passed a bag ban, and then just before it was supposed to be enforced starting January 1st, they backed off because they had done very little to prepare people for it, and they were getting a lot of defections from different municipalities, and now it was it's it's on, on permanent hold. I, it does make some sense what DeWine is saying, right, because everybody's afraid of the coronavirus with all the hand washing and things, and what he's saying is for now – Having the ability to get single-use plastic containers prevents the spread of the virus. A year from now, when that's probably not the case anymore, then we can get back to talking about this. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's- You're a big champion of this. You're, are you just despondent <laughs> that you can't bring your own bags in during the coronavirus? Like I just said, mostly we shop at Aldi, and you can bring your own bags into Aldi. Um, I, I, I understand people's concerns. I do hope that we can have an intelligent discussion about this at some point, because the idea that 
you know, the, the Republicans didn't do this because of the coronavirus. They did this because they don't want to hamper business or they, they have a plastic bag manufacturer in Ohio. And I just, I don't think it's very forward thinking. The whole point was to protect the lake and their, our environment from plastic. Plastic's probably the biggest threat in Lake Erie right now. And I, I just feel like we're burying our heads in the sand and saying, no, we're, we're not going to be environmentally thoughtful. Yeah, I, and I get back to the, it, they passed this. They acted on this. They haven't acted on HB6. Right. You know, I mean, we're, we're all about to pay $1.3 billion to a utility that probably shouldn't get it. And they've done nothing to stop that. But, but Cuyahoga County, you can't enforce your plastic bag ban. There is something seriously wrong with the picture in Columbus. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg is considered one of the biggest villains in U.S. history when it comes to harming the election process. So why are Ohio elections officials lining up for Zuckerberg's millions? Jane Cahoon, this was a, an interesting wrinkle in the whole election uh, crisis that we seem to be in. Zuckerberg is providing money for free and fair elections. Yeah. And so they're taking it because they say it can be put to good use that there are these two nonprofits giving this money away. And both were heavily funded by Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. Now, Zuckerberg's aim is to promote elections integrity and help pay for basic needed elections infrastructure, he says. So and as you said, you know, Facebook is regarded by many as a villain and they've been trying to clean up their image when it comes to elections after, you know, hosting, uh, you know, widespread disinformation <laughs> during during election campaigns. But anyway, um, most of this money is going to county boards of elections and um, and they're taking it. Uh, but also Ohio lawmakers on Monday approved accepting one point one million from one of these groups uh, to pay for radio, TV, digital ads uh, describing absentee voting procedures, combating misinformation, poll worker recruitment, and other items. That's according to the request from Secretary of State Frank LaRose, a Republican who who favors accepting this. And the Ohio Association of Elections officials is also encouraging that this money be accepted and, and put to use. But some Republicans are balking at this, you know, either because of Zuckerberg's involvement in the disinformation stuff or or just on the principle of of taking money from a private company. So in Summit County, the Board of Elections kind of sidestepped this decision and I think they're leaving it to to county council after concerns were raised about this. All right. I hesitate to do this because time is short, but I'm going to ask Chris Vernowski to weigh in on this. Chris Vernowski, you, you have strong feelings about Facebook. Uh, is it hypocritical? For elections officials, the people that are tasked with making them fair to take money from a social media agency mammoth that clearly, clearly put their thumbs on the scale last time and skewed the election. Well, I mean, you're talking about the probably the largest purveyor of disinformation to begin with. So to funnel company money into a nonprofit and say, here you go, kid, like, you know, do something good with this. It, it's. Like it's mind boggling. Um, <laughs> I, I think what companies like this don't understand is if they were just taxed properly, that money could be used to have free and fair elections. But instead, they want to control it through philanthropy and and and, you know, to throw down crumbs to to help alleviate a problem that they largely created themselves. So I you know, I, I can understand. I mean, there's there's 
a lot of politics involved in 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 what Facebook is currently doing. And and I think it would be bad PR for for state election officials and, and county election officials to take this company's money, but they need that money. So you know if 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 it, I mean it's it's such a it's such a it's such a weird position to be in because you know that money will be useful for elections. It, it could be useful, but you know what are you sacrificing in your dignity and respect by taking it from? from Mark Zuckerberg, who is, you know, the, just the worst. So, well, it's dirty money. I mean, you are taking money from the guy who made it in part by putting his thumb on the scale of the election. Well, and so it's an ends justify the means, or do you make a principled decision like Summit County did? You should. And, and, but I think that, you know, it, it, it is worth noting that, that Facebook has done some very small things to try to combat misinformation. They've made very big announcements about how they're, con- uh, you know, going to combat this. But then, you know, they, they leave up posts that have bad information about voting, which is something they said that they were not going to allow. And they said they're taking action on ads, but they're doing nothing to combat the spread of misinformation through organic posts, which, you know, is is where they make a lot of money. And and so th- there will be, I hope, at some point in this his- in the history of this, that that this company will face a reckoning for this because it's really – you know, when we get some critical distance away from this election and, f- and from what Facebook has done to our electoral pr- process over the past few years, it's it's it's, it, you know, something okay. should happen to it. Like, that's that's all I have. To say. All right. We got to leave it there. <laughs> We're out of time. It's this week in the CLE. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this conversation. We have a good time doing it. I hope you have a good time hearing it. We'll be back Friday for a wrap up of the week's news. 